The guest at the past 1892 is here once more. A brief synopsis of all things dark and gilded, with special attention to the last week or so of March. Playing a bit of catch-up here. Let's scrape the bottom of the pot and see what burnt goodies we are able to bring to the surface. But wait. Before we get to scraping, I would like to read you a poem. A very recognizable one for many. O Captain, my Captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting. While follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But, O oh, heart, 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 O oh, the bleeding drops of red, Where on the deck my captain lies, Fallen, cold, and dead. You might recognize this poem from Dead Poets Society. The poet is Walt Whitman, and he passed away on March 26th, 1892, at the age of 72 in Philadelphia. Let's continue. First up, a story out of the March 26th edition of the Minneapolis Tribune, page one, and off the wire. The headline, an Amazon. And by the way, the word scantling appears in this article. For those of you who aren't aware, a scantling is a piece of lumber. Chicago, March 25th. For nearly an hour today, Mrs. Mary Haggerty, mother of Doe Haggerty, who was shot and killed by bad Jimmy Connerton, in Lansing and McGarrigal's saloon about 18 months ago, held Deputy Sheriff Fred Liebrand and six stalwart assistants at bay. March 9th, J.J. Vreeland obtained a writ of restitution against Mrs. Haggerty for the premises she occupied at 106 North Elizabeth Street. The following day, Deputy Liebrand visited her and asked her to give peaceable possession of the property. She refused. Today, a deputy and six assistants started for the house. When they arrived there, Mrs. Haggerty was sitting at a window, and the front door was locked. Mrs. Haggerty refused to open it, so the deputy and his assistants went to the back door, which was not only locked, but barricaded with half the furniture in the house. Procuring a scantling, the seven men and the scantling transformed themselves into a battering ram, and after several onslaughts, the door yielded. The besiegers then put the biggest man of the party, a burly German, at their head and started to enter. Mrs. Haggerty, armed with a hatchet, met them at the head of a flight of stairs. When the German appeared, she lifted the weapon and brought it down with all the force that she could command upon the man's head. 
In her excitement, she had turned the hatchet in her hand, and it fell with the flat side. He ducked his head, and so only felt part of the blow, but caught another on the shoulder. That was enough for him, and with the six others, he beat a hasty retreat. Mrs. Haggerty followed them down the stairs and again barricaded the door. Six men then manned the battering ram, and Deputy Liebrandt stood at the door, armed with a big club. When the door yielded, he and the woman stood face to face, man against woman and club against hatchet. The former carried the day, and the deputy carried the woman into the street. She struck and bit and kicked and butted him with her head, and the deputy finally seized her by the wrists and held her up against a wall. For full 20 minutes, she struggled, and at the end of that time, the deputy, who was by no means a weakling, had to give up. He called the German and turned her over to him. The German couldn't hold her, and another man was detained to assist. Between them, they managed to keep her quiet until the furniture was removed from the house. Here is a tragic tale from Wisconsin, reported on by the Daily Independent, Chippewa Falls. Foul play is charged. Lawrence Willman of Altoona has applied to the district attorney of Eau Claire County for a warrant for the arrest of one John Euland, known as John the Finn. Wilman claims that Euland enticed his daughter, Kate, aged 18, from Eau Claire to a Nielsville house of ill repute, run by Charles Oakland, and that Euland is a procurer. The girl died suddenly at Nielsville on Monday, and the father believes she was murdered in the house of ill repute. It was given out at Nielsville that her death was caused by black diphtheria, and the body was buried almost immediately, and at nighttime. Then her clothes were packed up, and with a letter sent to her parents at Altoona. The sending of the clothes indicates that the girl did not die of diphtheria. Her father believes she died from a kick in the stomach. The whereabouts of Euland is unknown. It is said Wilman will institute an investigation at Nielsville and that the girl's body will be exhumed. The main headline on the front page of New York's The Evening World, March 28th, blasted the words, Extra Five Shocks, Jeremiah Cotto Executed in Sing Sing. It was a blow-by-blow description of his death by electric chair. Before I read from the article, though, we need to go back to the prior summer. I'm going to stick with the evening world, by the way, and read the first story, entitled Bay Ridge Murder Mystery, 
written just hours after the discovery of the body, in their July 25th issue, page 1. The Unknown Victim's Body Found in the Road An unknown man was found dead in the middle of the road, on 49th Street, near Franklin Avenue, Bay Ridge, between 4 and 5 o'clock this morning. A deep gash, an inch long, was discovered behind his left ear. His head was covered with blood. The crimson fluid had streamed down over his clothing, and there was a large pool of it under the man's head. The case is reported by the police as a supposed murder, although it is impossible to say positively how the man came to his death until an autopsy is performed. The dead man was about 30 years old, is 5 feet 3 inches in height, weighed 140 pounds, and has the swarthy complexion of an Italian. He was discovered by Charles Ullman, a driver for Farmer Cropsey, who is a produce raiser at Bay Ridge. Ullman had been to market with a load of produce and was on his way home when he made the ghastly discovery. He was driving his team slowly up 49th Street. He was half asleep. Suddenly, the horses shied and turned out of their course. The driver roused with a start. Looking down, he saw the Italian's body lying almost alongside his wagon. Driver Ullman stopped his horses and climbed down from his seat. He lifted the body to see whether there was life in it. The man was dead. Ullman immediately notified the police. When detectives arrived at the scene, they found signs that there had been a struggle. A broken pipe lay alongside the body. Two bags of vegetables, one containing potatoes and cabbage, the other tomatoes and red peppers, had been opened and their contents strewn around the road. There were also many footprints near the spot. Whether the man had been shot or clubbed to death, the officers could not say. Coroner Rooney, after examining the body, said he thought the man had been dead about five hours. The victim has not yet been identified. His clothing was searched, but nothing was found that would furnish a clue as to who he was. At noon, the body was taken to the Brooklyn morgue. So, just a couple of days later, police had a suspect in hand, Jeremiah Cotto, as well as a confession, but not from Cotto. The details of his capture were relayed to readers in the July 27th issue of The Evening World, 1891, along with the name of the victim, an Italian immigrant named Louis Frank Losa. Retributive justice is certain to overtake the murderer of Louis Frank Losa. The Brooklyn police feel certain that they have the assassin in the toils. Early last Saturday morning, the dead body of an Italian, cut and gashed in a most shocking manner 
was found lying in a lonely and deserted spot in the roadway of 49th Street and 2nd Avenue, near the Brooklyn city limits. As told in Saturday's Evening World, this ghastly discovery was made by Charles Ullman, a driver employed by Farmer Cropsey, as he was coming back from the market about 3 o'clock in the morning. There were evidences that a terrible struggle had taken place at the spot, and that the victim had fought desperately for his life. That a foul murder had been committed was clear. Ullman at once reported what he had discovered to the police of the 18th Brooklyn Precinct, and at daybreak the body was removed to the morgue near the Raymond Street Jail. For a time, it looked as if the murder was one of those mysteries the police have found so difficult to unravel. For the wounds upon the body of the dead man seemed to show that he had been attacked by several persons. There were the marks of a club, as well as of the deadly stiletto. Nothing was found upon the victim which could lead to his identification. Nothing was known of him beyond the fact that he was an Italian. Saturday afternoon, however, the police began to pick up some clues, and they have arrested the supposed assassin, Jeremiah Cato, an evil-looking Italian, as well as the wife of the murdered man, whom they firmly believe was Cato's accomplice in the bloody work. The motive for the crime, it is believed, was jealousy and grew out of the criminal relations which Cotto has, for a long time past, sustained with the murdered man's wife. The first light was thrown on the mystery when Cotto and Mrs. Frank Losa called at the 18th Precinct Station Saturday afternoon and made inquiries for Louis Frank Losa, whom the woman said was her husband. He had disappeared the night before, she said, and she feared that some disaster had overtaken him. Sergeant Handy sent the couple over to the morgue with Detectives Burns and Ryan, and there the woman identified the bloody corpse as that of her husband. She showed the utmost indifference and looked at the body as though it were a common clod. Cotto at first denied that he knew Frank Losa at all, but he afterwards admitted that he had lived with him and his wife at 153 25th Street for the past six months. Frank Losa occupied two basement rooms in a miserable tenement house, occupied entirely by Italians, and had three children, a girl of seven, a boy of four years, and a baby six months old. Cotto had boarded with him. The actions of the pair aroused the suspicions of the police, and under the instructions of Sergeant Hardy, Detectives Burns and Ryan proceeded to investigate the case. They let the man and woman go for a time, but kept a watch upon them. Inquiries in the neighborhood where they lived developed the fact that Cotto's relations with Mrs. Frank Losa were the common talk of the neighborhood, and the two men had often quarreled violently about her. 
It was said that Cotto knew Mrs. Frank Losa in Naples eight years ago, before she was married, and he himself had lived with the couple since he came here from Italy about a year ago. The Frank Losas came here eight years ago. The detectives also learned that on several occasions, Cotto had threatened to kill Frank Losa, and that not long ago he asked one of his acquaintances if he could not tell him of some slow but sure poison with which he might get rid of the husband. The woman was apparently infatuated with Cotto and did not care in the least for her husband's feelings. Why he permitted his rival to remain so long in the house was a mystery which his friends could not explain. Both men made a living by picking rags and occasionally working as laborers when they could get a job. Frank Losa had saved considerable money, it was said. Saturday evening, it was learned that Cotto had packed up all the things in the Frank Losa house and was preparing to move away. He had sold several articles of furniture and had taken a trunk full of things to the rooms of a relative in the neighborhood. He had left two other trunks in the house and the same day had sold several bundles of rags to some Italian junk dealers named James and Tony Paco, who had a shop at 52nd Street and 2nd Avenue in Brooklyn. Cotto also tried to get the Pacos to move the rest of the things over to New York at midnight, but they refused to do this. Neither Cotto nor Mrs. Frank Losa returned to the house that evening, but the detectives had learned enough to justify them in making some arrests. They watched the house all night and learned early Sunday morning that Mrs. Frank Losa had taken the three children over to New York. Cotto, however, was still in the neighborhood, making arrangements to take away the rest of the goods that remained in Frank Losa's rooms. He made his appearance about 9 o'clock and was arrested as he was going into the house. He disclaimed all knowledge of the murder and protested his innocence. The detectives searched him, however, and found in his possession several knives and a long rat-tail file, which was sharpened to a needle point. They took him to the station and locked him up, and then went to look for Mrs. Frank Losa. After much search, they found her in an Italian tenement house at 50 Crosby Street in this city, in the rooms of one of her countrymen, who was said to be her godfather. The detectives told her she must go over to Brooklyn, but she at first refused. To avoid a scene, the detectives told her they had captured a colored man who had murdered her husband, and she then consented to go with them, taking with her her youngest child and leaving the other two in New York. It was not until evening that she reached the 18th Precinct Station, where Inspector McKellar, Acting Captain Hardy, and other police officials were waiting for her arrival. At first, she refused to say anything at all, 
either in regard to the crime or her relations with Kato. Neither she nor Kato can speak English, and the examination had to be conducted through an interpreter. The police authorities kept at her all the evening, however, and at two o'clock this morning, she gave in and told her story. She admitted that she and Cato had been intimate and said that she had known him in Italy. After living with her husband for seven years in this country, she had written to him to come to America, telling him that he could make a barrel of money here. He had lived with them ever since his arrival here, and though her husband had become very jealous of him, she had compelled him to allow Cato to remain in the house. Cato, she said, was a married man and had a wife and two children living in Naples. Recently, her husband and Cato had had several violent quarrels, and Cato had repeatedly threatened to kill Frank Losa. Friday night, Frank Losa went out, just before midnight, to forage in the fields of the neighboring farmers for vegetables. When work was scarce, he used to steal vegetables at night and sell them to his neighbors. Cato was in the room when he went out, but he shortly afterward put on his hat and followed Frank Losa. Mrs. Frank Losa did not see Cato again until nearly four o'clock Saturday morning, when he entered her room covered with dust and dirt. There was blood all over his trousers and on his shirt. The woman said she asked him where her husband was, and he had evaded the question. He seemed to be in a very bad humor. Finally, when she insisted upon knowing where Frank Losa was, Cotto replied, Oh, he's outside. He'll be home in a little while. Cotto then took off his bloody clothes and his heavy shoes, which were also splashed with blood, and washed them. Then he tore the clothing up into shreds and stuffed it into one of the bags, which contained a lot of rags. Shortly after daylight, she says, he took the bundles of rags, tied them up together, and said he was going off to sell them. When he returned, he packed up the rest of the clothing in the house, and then they went to the police station together. The police are astounded at the nerve which the man showed. After his arrest, they showed him the pieces of the broken clay pipe, which were found on the road beside the murdered body of Frank Losa, and he promptly identified them as his. They also examined his shoes, which the woman said he had washed, and found that they were still wet. No traces of the blood, however, could be distinguished. In the trunk, belonging to Cotto, a lot of horse blankets and clothing, which the police believed to be stolen property, were found. Two knives were also found in his trunk and will be examined by experts. Detectives Boyle and Quinn traced the rags Cotto sold to the Paco brothers on Saturday morning. They found them this morning in Flynn's junk shop in Congress Street, Paco having resold them the same day. In one of the bundles, they found a pair of trousers, a coat, vest, and drawers. 
which corresponded to the description of the clothing given by Mrs. Frank Losa. The police decline to say at present whether there is any indication of blood upon the clothing. They arrested James and Tony Paco, the junk dealers, last night, but the two were afterwards discharged and will be used as witnesses against Cotto. They confirm the story that Cotto wanted to hire them to remove his things from the Frank Losa house in 25th Street to New York on Saturday night. The police believe that the woman and her paramour had made all arrangements to flee together as soon as Frank Losa had been put out of the way. They were both arraigned in the Butler Street Police Court this morning and were committed to the Raymond Street Jail to await the action of the grand jury. The woman is not apparently more than 30 years old. She has a very dark, swarthy skin and rather delicate features. When she was brought into the court, she wore a black dress and a black cloth tied over her head. She carried her baby in her arms. When the court interpreter told her that she was charged with causing the death of her husband and asked if it was true, she replied in the affirmative, but immediately afterwards said she was not guilty. She showed no concern, whatever, about the matter, but when she was taken into the back room where Cotto sat, she began to upbraid him in Italian. Unfortunately, the interpreter was not present, and they were soon separated. Cotto is a low-browed, swarthy-skinned fellow and has a villainous look in his eye. He wears little gold rings in his ears. He had nothing to say in court, except that he was married and had a wife and children in Italy. He and the woman were taken down to police headquarters on their way to the jail, and there photographs were taken. The police say that they have not the slightest doubt that Cotto is the murderer of Frank Losa. Eventually, Cotto would be tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death. So again on March 28th, information about his execution was printed for New Yorkers to read about in all of its gruesomeness. Sing Sing, March 28th, Jeremiah Cotto has been killed by electricity. There was nothing unduly revolting in the spectacle. He made no resistance and after the first contact, ceased to feel pain. To guard against mishap, the current was turned on five times. The duration of each shock was 12 seconds. His death was less painful than it would have been by hanging. The witnesses, 26 in number, filed into the death chamber at 10.35 and seated themselves on stools which were ranged in an arc in front of the death chair. State electrician Davis and an assistant carefully examined the electrodes, and then a battery of 20 electric lamps was rested on the arms of the chair. We will now test the current, Warden Brown said. An assistant turned on the current and 20 lights glowed. Said the warden, I must ask you to keep your seats under no circumstances, make a noise 
or ask any questions. No one can go out until the execution is over. This is imperative. At 10.42, all was ready, and Warden Brown left the death chamber for Cotto's cell. Silence followed for a moment. Then, from the corridor beyond, came the sound of voices in prayer. The sound drew nearer until, in through the door to the left of the death chair, came the victim, supported by the two Italian priests, Fathers Milo and De Sanctis. His head was shaven, and his yellowish face glistened. He seemed to have nerved himself for the ordeal. He was gently pushed into the death chair, the priests chanting prayers the while. Cotto repeated the words of Father Milo, who was nearest him. He looked like one who had fixed his mind on some one thing and took no note of what was happening about him. Father De Sanctis kneeled on the floor to the right of the chair. Ora pro nobis, ora pro nobis, he said loudly, over and over again. Ora pro, Cotta was saying after him, when the leather mask that holds the head to the back of the chair was pulled over his face. Keeper Jackson pulled up the right trousers leg and applied the electrode to his calf. The other attendants fastened on the headpiece. Ora pro nobis, repeated the priest. The man at the crank turned on the current. It was 20 seconds after 1045. The shock threw Cotto's body upwards. There was a creaking of the straps and buckles in their fastenings. Then the body settled back in the chair with a dull noise. The movement threw the leather mask down on the chin, leaving exposed the eyes and nose. The face, once of yellowish hue, had become purple. The eyes were closed, but the extreme edges of the lids curled apart like one blinking at a fierce light. The calf of the right leg above the place of contact began also to discolor. The current was kept on 12 seconds, although it seemed longer. When it was turned off, the body sank against the holding straps, wholly collapsed. An interval of three seconds and another shock was given. This also of 12 seconds duration. There was the same throwing of the body upward and temporary rigidity. The purple of the face grew darker and the hands turned bluish as when one wraps a cord too tightly about his wrist. Twelve seconds more and the current was again turned off, this time for 18 seconds. The doctors listened for heartbeats. When the third shock was given, steam arose from the victim's forehead. It was the action of the hot current on the water in the electroid sponges. The eyes were now like two dark lines and a longitudinal crease that looked like a cut appeared over the bridge of the nose, almost connecting the black streaks made by the eyelashes. 
The physicians once more listened for heartbeats. Dr. Irvine first, and then Dr. Abbott. He is dead, said the former. But to make assurance sure, two more shocks were given. After the first contact, Cotto gave no sign of life, and he suffered only for an instant. And thus ends this episode of Aghast at the Past. More to come soon. <laughs>